0: a show about the day's emerging public health issues and the intersection of politics. Your hosts are Kyle McGowan and Amanda Campbell. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the importance of data for public health and preparing for the next public health threat. Yeah, that's right.
1: And um, I I guess we should set the scene a little bit here, Amanda. Um, we, We actually got invited to speak at the HEMS conference, National HEMS Conference, Last uh, couple weeks ago, which is the Health Information and Management Systems Society, Uh, we were there talking about data and public health data and had the opportunity to present, um, you know, a 20, 30 minute presentation while at HIMSS. And we decided we wanted to adapt that, make it into today's podcast.
0: Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I think the most important place to begin is to help people understand better exactly what public health is, because public health has been in the news a lot the past eighteen months or so, really since the start of of COVID nineteen and the pandemic. But I don't think a lot of folks know really what is public health. there are a lot of different pieces that go into it, whether that's surveillance, monitoring, um, disease prevention, emergency preparedness, environmental health, research, communication, um, and a variety of different um, activities that we're now familiar with, like contact tracing and testing and uh, disease monitoring, that type of thing. But Despite the fact that there are all of these various components of public health, essentially what public health is, is the tools that we have in place to prevent, detect, and respond to public health threats like COVID-19, but also foodborne illnesses and vector-borne diseases and a whole host of other things. It's the promotion of preventative activities that actually help to prevent illness and death, like getting your vaccine, smoking cessation campaigns, and healthy eating, Uh, as well as the detection or surveillance capacity to identify new and emerging threats.
1: Yeah, and you know, when public health works, all the things you just mentioned, Amanda, when when, when they work and public health kind of universally just does what it's supposed to do, you don't always hear about it. And I mean, I like we love our you know former colleagues at the uh, National Institutes of Health and love what they do and represent for healthcare and public health. But when they fund something through a grant or a cooperative agreement, and that entity, a unit, let's say a research university, makes some grand uh, um, step to curing a disease or uh, helping. Uh, build out a therapeutic or whatever it is that they do, they're able to put out a press release saying, here's how NIH funded and there's a direct line to something great and wonderful. Well, it's hard to do that when CDC or public health stops a measles outbreak from even occurring or a foodborne outbreak from even occurring. It's difficult to explain sometimes exactly what public health is and what it does, because when it works, you don't always see it,
0: that's right, and the thing is that all of of all these various activities that we've just described, there is one thing that is working behind the scenes to really make it all possible, and that's data at at the very core here is that these activities require and need data, and um, our public health workforce really needs the ability to use real time quality data to make informed, actionable public health decisions. Um, and we have learned that really better than we've ever could have appreciated it before, thanks to COVID.
1: Yeah, you know, during our time at the CDC, we, we definitely saw the need for good, actionable, quality data firsthand. I mean, we every single day, whether it was COVID or uh, vaping or Ebola, I mean, there are all these examples that we can give where good, actionable, quick data was needed. But unfortunately, for many different reasons, in the way that public health and the CDC has been funded over the past few decades having that good quality data isn't always there. I mean, we're seeing that right now in the news today with some of the the issues that the CDC is having with, with tracking outbreaks of folks or uh, infections of people who have already been vaccinated with the COVID vaccine. You know, they're still struggling with this. And it's not that they don't recognize the problem. They fully understand and recognize the problem. The issue that the CDC and public health in general has is that by the way it's been funded and lack of funding throughout the decades. You know, I I always give the example of at the beginning of COVID, some states were getting case counts for COVID case counts by fax machine. And when when you're having to use fax machines and pen and paper and just emailing Excel files, Things fall through the cracks. That's not efficient. That's not the way things should be done today. And again, it's not that CDC and public health want to do things this way. It's that that's how they they have to do things because of funding. And you know, I, I think it's pretty it's important to say that the CDC doesn't want to do business this way. They're trying and they have fully understood the need to transition into uh, a different way of doing business and making sure that the data they provide, no matter how the way it's collected, is clean and quality and and so that action can be, you know, decisions and action can be made based on good quality data.
0: Yeah, and the CDC um, does often get called sluggish or slow to release their data. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the CDC wants to ensure that a lot of the data that they provide is quality data. And it, to your point, takes time to to do that cleaning of the data to ensure that it's accurate um, and informed and doesn't have any missing uh, components to it. Um, And the reason this data is so important is because They know that whatever data they release is going to be used by decision makers to make decisions that may affect all of us, Um, but it's also going to be what's used to inform the public. And so this, this is a real challenge, particularly during a pandemic when time is the one resource that you simply don't have enough of, and there's a constant demand for data in order to help folks you know make these critical decisions in addition to the need to just you know update that infrastructure the tools and technology for public health to collect data to store data public health needs the ability to quickly access it um, run analytics on it and uncover trends that can be seen ahead of time right so we want to be able to see outbreaks Kind of before they occur, we want to be able to catch them right at the um, the outset when we see new variants, for example, like the delta variant um, or other new emerging threats.
1: Yeah, that that's absolutely right. And, and you mentioned running data, you know, having the data to be able to run analytics and and being able to predict or better see where future outbreaks or pandemics or issues are arising. you know that that's important. It's moving forward. Because we do have, you know, I mentioned earlier that people were collecting data by fax and pens and paper, and and that is an issue, absolutely, but it's not the only issue. There are other areas where public health does a wonderful job of collecting data and collecting information, and they do it near real time, and it is just absolutely great at the information that they're collecting. The problem is they're in data silos, and so you'll have a silo of information over here and a silo of information over there that don't talk to each other. And so you, it's not easy to run the type of analytics and predictive analytics that we may want to be doing to help look for future outbreaks or where the conditions may be right for an outbreak or a future pandemic. And we use these uh, type of analytics and and gathering of information to determine, you know, for things like where PPE should go to, where personnel should go to. And so equally as frustrating as having pen and paper to collect information, having good data, but data that's in silos is equally frustrating because it, it hinders the time it takes or it makes it longer to be able to do the analytics that's needed. And I think the CDC... In public health in general, I mean, they collect so much information that is great. I mean, they collect things from salmonella outbreaks to teenagers that smoke and what flavors of of vaping and cigarettes they like, uh, flu results, um, outbreaks of measles, but also deaths by gun, deaths by car, deaths by blunt object. I mean, the whole national violent death reporting system is just this siloed data stream of how people die. And and that information is extremely important, but it needs to be, and I use that as just an example, there are many others. I use that as an example of how do we, as public health, tie those data streams together where we can run predictive analytics on. So take all of those data streams that I just mentioned from CDC and public health, and I was just scratching the surface. I mean, there are hundreds of these And then you take in and you add in other hospital data and EHRs and all of the data that county and state public health uh, labs and departments have. And now you're starting to get a better sense of how many data silos truly exist across all of public health. And, And the CDC understands this and understands that they need to figure out a way to tap into all of those data streams in a way where they can run those types of analytics moving forward.
0: Right, Kyle, and I think that's so critically important so that we can actually have a robust picture of what public health really looks like in this country. You can't do it if you're just looking at one slice of, or one piece of the puzzle. It's all of those things coming together. But beyond the tools and the technology and the data silos that exist, the key thing, and you mentioned this at the very beginning, Kyle, is that public health has been underfunded for decades. So kind of to your point about how CDC is recognizing all of these challenges from a data perspective and how they, they want to fix them, but it's not something that can be fixed overnight. It's not even something that can be fixed in 18 months. It's something that they're they're having to play catch up for decades where public health has um at both the national level and at the local state level, has been underfunded. And part of the reason for that, as you mentioned, is that because when public health succeeds, it can be rather difficult to point to. Um, And instead, what is a lot easier is to throw money or to fund public health when we actually have a crisis on our hands. So take, for example, um, some of the biggest threats that we've faced in the past you know, ten years or so, um, Ebola in West Africa uh, in 2014 to 2016, Zika um, around that same time, the opioid epidemic, um, and then and then COVID most recently. When we think about these things from a national perspective, we can see time and again how Congress has. Just, just traditionally funded public health in these knee-jerk reactions. A, a big bolus of money is going to go out the door uh, to help solve an issue. But then once the funds have run out and that issue is no longer a concern, then the investments and the progress that has been made are often not sustained because the funding on an annual basis isn't there to continue to support it.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I and I think bringing up Zika as an example is is very it's a very good example because it happened recently. There were lots of lots of dollars went to states to do a few things. But one of them was to build lab capacity to be able to test pregnant women for uh for Zika, right? And we trained all these individuals. We we developed a test. We had all of this capacity at the labs. Uh, on the lab side of public health to be able to do what was needed for Zika. Well, Zika went away as a threat and all of that capacity and those individuals who were working on that, it kind of dried up. They went and they started doing other things. And, you know, I give this as an example of if we had continued funding the efforts we were doing with Zika at much, much lower levels, but had continued those efforts. I mean, we built an infrastructure As a a federal government, we, we allowed dollars to flow to build this infrastructure that was needed for Zika. Zika was no longer a threat and that infrastructure started drying up. And if we had continued just a little bit of funding to keep that infrastructure in place, I honestly believe that in certain parts of the country, like in Florida, we would have been able to surge quicker by using the assets we already had in place for Zika. But they weren't there anymore they were no longer funded and you know i give another example of where you know building the importance of building these public health and infrastructure at cert, at state at the state level and and county level and and when i was uh, when we were out in las vegas and i gave this presentation i asked anybody from from west virginia to to raise their hand if cuz i didn't want to offend anybody cuz this is going to sound very bad but You know, West Virginia gets this bad rap for being some backwoods state. And it's just, when it comes to public health, it's just farthest from the truth at the moment. Because they've struggled over the years, recently, with things like opioid deaths and outbreaks of HIV and hepatitis. And they've seen their need for public health surveillance and just all around better public health to help their state. And they've gotten federal funds for HIV and for uh, opioids, and they've built a surveillance program at the state level that when COVID hit, actually really, really helped them. And they were in a better position than a lot of other really, really large states because they hadn't made the investments in the years prior to better their public health infrastructure and that's what we're talking about and taking dollars and taking the infrastructure that you're spending on one disease and being able to quickly adapt that to other diseases but if if the if the funding dries up between every single disease knee jerk reaction from congress and dries up between every single disease you're not able to do that quick uh pivot and and help out where you're able, to, like in, in the instance of, New, I mean, uh, West Virginia, we're able to quickly pivot from HIV, hepatitis, and opioids to COVID. And you know, equally as frustrating when it comes from a funding standpoint of knee-jerk reactions and Congress throwing money at the problem. You also have disease-specific funding. So, in between these knee-jerk reactions by Congress, they fund the CDC with over 200 different funding lines. And so you have this agency that's billions of dollars, and it looks like it's a huge agency, but then you have it broken down by over 200 different funding lines. So when the CDC says, I want to build an agency-wide surveillance program to do the surveillance of COVID, well, the money's not there to be able to quickly the flexible funding isn't there to be able to quickly take dollars from different parts of the agency and do that because Congress doesn't allow it. And so it, it, when we talk about funding, everyone kind of rolls their eyes when it said, when, when people say more funding is needed, but you know, I'm sorry, more funding is needed and, and more consistent funding is needed and more flexible funding is needed.
0: Yeah. I think it might be helpful too, to just kind of put into perspective, um, even in the this most current budget cycle that we're in, the NIH is almost four times the size of the CDC when it comes to the budget. And it's important to remember that while, yes, we need to be making in investments in research and uh, discovery of, um, of new cures and new treatments and therapies, the CDC is often the implementation side of, the, of, of, of public health based on the, a lot of those discoveries or on the research that NIH does. Um, and we are at a point where we see a disequilibrium, if you will, I, I think. Yeah. Um, especially based on the lessons that we've learned from COVID, I think that the, the scales are a bit unbalanced.
1: Yeah, it, it certainly is. And there's nothing more frustrating than, uh, and again, I love our former colleagues at the NIH, but there's nothing more frustrating than seeing after a 100-year pandemic, the increase in the NIH's budget is larger than the entire CDC's budget. That's quite frustrating, I will say.
0: Well, I, I think you and I both like to see science put into action, and I think we also understand and appreciate um, all too well now uh, what the impact of that is firsthand, and and what it means when when it's not there, right, at your time of need. So I know we've talked a lot about the problem, but uh, I think it's time to turn and talk about the solution.
1: Yeah, that that's right, Amanda. And you know we. Now uh, we're going to spend the rest of the podcast on the solutions, and you know that was one of the things when we were at the CDC, we we really wanted to help bring a focus. Uh, on what are the, the long-term solutions that the CDC needs. And one of the things that I know both of us were were so grateful to be able to work on was helping build out a, a strategic plan for the CDC. And one of the main things that came out of that discussion and that development of that strategic plan was the need to uh, better organize the CDC's current data and and use it in, in a uh, bring it into a, a whether it's a cloud-based system or a system where analytics can be run on it moving forward. And those discussions about what was needed when it comes to data turned out to what is now called the data modernization initiative that the CDC is currently uh, working with and has now been funded and is in its uh, is its second or third year.
0: Yeah, that's right. So it began. Um... I think really in in 2019 uh, with funding towards the end of that year. So unfortunately, it was a little bit too late to have as much of an impact as we would have liked to have seen um, before COVID hit. But the whole purpose of of DMI, as you mentioned, is to address all the problems that we've just talked about, addressing the tools, the technology, the data silos, and to, to really update the entire nation's public health data infrastructure to enable us to be better able to respond to future public health st- threats. We've said before that timely, accurate, and complete data is what's needed to more quickly respond to public, public health threats, but also to predict where public health threats are emerging in the future. So now the focus is on um, making sure that we have sustained funding. Um, I think a lot of folks have probably heard that um, some recent pieces of the stimulus funding that was provided to the CDC uh, during COVID has provided them with some of the necessary resources to help make this a reality, but what they don't have is a sustained annual basis of funding moving forward to help ensure that those investments don't wither on the vine, frankly. Um, we need to make investments in the infrastructure to get data more quickly, but also on the tools to run analytics and generate insights. And then, you know, again, to break down those silos that help us to create that full public health picture, not only using public health data, but data from across our entire healthcare system. And CDC is doing just that. So in the short term, they are working to automate their early warning surveillance systems to more quickly identify potential threats, moving from that um, sort of on-premises platform to storing data actually in the cloud that's going to allow them to um, be more forward-leaning and to more quickly respond and scale to the challenges at hand. But also to transitioning um, CDC's legacy systems so that they can begin to become more interoperable and speaking to one another to help generate um, those insights and frankly that just have they haven't been able to to, to generate for so long, uh, but the potential for. Getting to that point where you are generating those insights and where you can put science into action and save lives, eliminate disease, and end epidemics is there. And that's the reality that CDC is trying to get to. So, for example, when we were first looking at how we could get COVID test results reported directly from from states, we didn't have the infrastructure in place to do it. And in record time, we went from zero jurisdictions reporting lab data directly to CDC to 56 jurisdictions reporting over 300 million tests since last April. To me, that one story illustrates what's behind many of the accomplishments um, that CDC has been able to make um, since COVID started. And it all was requ- all that was required was the right plan, the right expertise, and then the right resources um, that we've talked about today. And and all of this can be solved. Um, again, it just takes. It just takes the right willpower and uh, desire to see it through.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think it's important. I mean, we started the the podcast off with all all of these things that have been wrong and bad and not happening and things that we could be doing better. I think it's important to really focus on what you just said, that there have been a huge number of wins that the CDC has had and, and public health in general has had with bettering the way they collect data and the way they use data. And, you know, I can't tell you how frustrating it's going to be if, as a country, we're not able to keep that momentum up by fully funding in in a way that gives the CDC and public health the flexibility to be able to build out these systems that we're talking about in a way that will continue to work, not just in disease-specific areas, but across all of public health moving forward. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of folks who are working in this space and see that this is a need. And I'm happy to see that Congress has funded the CDC and public health the way they have uh, throughout this pandemic. It was needed. Um, But again, I was discouraged to see the president's budget request with the breakdown between NIH and uh, CDC because it's almost like they, they still don't get it. They still don't understand that that consistent funding is needed to continue all of the great work that, you know, Amanda, you just mentioned, and and that hasn't even started yet, but that is currently being in the works in the planning stages at the CDC. All of that is at risk if we're not able to make sure that good, consistent funding happens across the board. And it needs to be a certain section of that. I know Congress is very hesitant to give agencies, not just the CDC, but any department and agency, flexible funding. This is when they typically call things a slush fund. But you can put guardrails in place on these dollars or allow certain dollars to be spent a little more flexible than they have in the past. Just that little change would go a long way to helping the CDC and public health in general with some of the problems that we've discussed today. Well, that's all the time we have for today. And as a reminder, you can find our podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you have a moment, leave a review. Remember, stay classy, stay healthy, America.